Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And just a few housekeeping things before we get on with the show. As always, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been servicing all Southwest Florida since 2004 when it comes to their IT needs. Whether you're a veterinarian clinic, a construction firm, residential user, whether you have networks, servers, tablets, laptops, cell phones smart TVs, what have you. If it's tech related and you need it done, closed circuit cameras, smart TVs, Act Computers has your back. Just give them a call 239-283-1120. They can help you out with all of your IT needs. And I know what you're saying. Don, I love you. I want to help the show. I want to support your sponsors, but I do not live in Southwest Florida. How could I possibly use Act Computers to help me easily? As long as you have internet connectivity and you're having some issues, Give them a call, 239-283-1120. Hit them up via their Facebook page, and uh, they can help. They can log into your computer using their software from their website, and they can help you with any issues you're having as long as your internet works. So you don't have to be a resident of Southwest Florida to use Act Computers. Just give them a call, 239-283-1120. We have a few other ways to support the show. If you're in an active lifestyle, whether you're running like I do, you're going to the gym, you ride bikes, you weekend warrior you play the um, flag football on the weekend or your kids in high school or middle school they're playing football anything active related sleeves.com that's s-l-e-e-f-s.com go there they have the spats to put over your cleats they got the pants they have um antibacterial quick dry uv protectant headbands they have the buffs if you're a fisherman or a boater go out on the boat you want to stay out of the sun they have all that stuff they got hats socks everything Go to sleeves.com, use promo code D41040, that's D410, such as Digital 410 Productions, and 40 as in 40% off. So D41040 at sleeves.com, use that promo code. Not only will you save 40%, but they'll kick me a few coins my way to help promote the show. So thanks so much for that. And if you don't need computer help, you're not into the active lifestyle, but you like to shop on Amazon, Here's the easiest thing you can do. Go to d-410.com or wtspworldwar2.com, click on the Amazon link, save that link in your favorites bar, and from now on when you go to Amazon on your computer, simply click the link in your toolbar, do all of your shopping, it won't cost you an extra dime or a nickel or even a penny. Won't charge you anything extra, but they will kick some coins my way to help with the show, to help get us some new equipment, better microphones, better mixing boards, better computers, the whole nine yards. You want to support the show, you can help us that way. And one last thing. If you really, really like us, you've already bought the t-shirts, and you want to help out more, go to our website, d-410.com or wtspworldwar2.com. Click on the Patreon link, and there's a couple of tiers. These are monthly base subscriptions. Um, I got the dollar baller. Honestly, I tried to make it 50 cents a month, but they won't let me go that low, so I made it a dollar a month. You want to kick me a dollar a month for a year? It's 12 bucks. Kick it my way. I'll love you for it. Got the dollar baller program. Now, if you're a listener of the What's the... 
Now, if you're a listener of the Waterman and D-Train show, our original fans we refer to as the OG5 because for the longest time we knew there was only five of you listening, but we loved you anyhow. We have the OG5 tier. Ironically, that's only $3.50 a month. You want to show us some love? Kick us down $3.50 a month. We'll love you for it. And then we have the t-shirt plan. I believe it's $5 a month for the full year. You buy the t-shirt plan, you kick down the money for the $5 a month. I will send you an email. You tell me what t-shirt you want, what size, and I will send it your way. No extra cost. It doesn't have to be a What's the Scuttlebutt shirt. If you're a fan of uh, Waterman D-Train Show, I'll send you one of their shirts. If you want a What's the Scuttlebutt shirt, I'll send you that shirt. If you want a Digital 410 production shirt, I will send you that shirt. And I'll also kick some stickers your way as well. So those are the latest ways to support the show, support what we're doing here to help raise money to buy better equipment, make more shows, and get us into the video production side. Thank you for all that. That is out of the way. Without any further ado, on with the interview. Little disclaimer, um, I just want to get this out of the way. I recorded this interview about a week and a half ago. It was like 7.30 in the morning or 8 in the morning on a Friday. I was still kind of recovering from the um, heat exhaustion I'd gotten from the previous event. You'll hear me sniffling and sneezing. I do apologize for all that, but the interview came out great, and I'm looking forward to this project, and I hope everybody supports it, and here we go. And joining us on the phone right now, I made a little bit of a reference to it on last week's episode when I was talking about the event we did out at the uh, Fun and Sun. You know, I want to say Sun and Fun, but that's the name of the Water Lagoon down in Naples, but it is the Sun and Fun event. Barry D. Kirsch, he is a documentarian. He, uh runs Iron Robot Films, and he joins us today to uh, promote a project he's working on. Barry, how are we doing this morning? Doing really good. Really good. Another busy day ahead. <laughs> That's always a good thing when you got a full schedule. Um, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming and create anxiety, but I think that anxiety is better than looking at an empty schedule saying, what am I going to do? That's exactly right. It's better to have way too much on your plate than to have an empty plate and an empty cupboard. Um, before we talk about your project, let's get a little history into uh, you and what you do and how you got there. Um, how did uh, you get into uh, filmmaking and uh, particularly document documentary making? It's early. I started, my career has been as an investigative photojournalist. Um, I became a, a photojournalist at 17 while I was still in high school and uh, with the Orlando Sentinel Star back then, back in 1974. And I've been a photojournalist ever since. And after 43 years of traveling around the world covering news events and that type of thing, um, I got interested in um, making my own films. And also, my knees weren't as good, so I couldn't run as fast as I, as I used to be. And if you can't get to the story first, it's hardly worth going sometime. Sure. Just to roll back a, a, a brief second, um, you said you got started in high school i'm assuming that's was through some sort of internship based around a photography class no really no, i scooped a bunch of photographers and was hired on the spot <laughs> nice so you just yeah. basically had a natural instinct for it yes yes i've always been interested in storytelling when i was a little kid i used to make like my own comic books and things like that about monsters and unusual flying saucers and things like that that's that's fantastic. You know, it's funny. I think a lot of people who, you know, particularly people who get into the creative side of things, whether it's podcasting, you know, a photography, particularly, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, we all had the dream of making our own underground magazine for a while, whatever it may have been. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
A lot of hours spent down at the Kinkos, uh, cutting and pasting long before Photoshop and computers <laughs> made it all streamlined and a lot easier. Um, I think that's part of the reason why Kinkos had to turn into a FedEx store because they didn't have all the high school and college kids there trying to push out independent magazines anymore. <laughs> that and that's the right. that and the local band making flyers for their shows because now that's all done online too. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to fast forward back to where you were. Um, you decided at some point you want to do your own projects and kind of yeah. After forty three years, it was um, it was about time to retire, especially if I wanted to still be young enough to make feature films and that type of thing. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in the industry shooting stills and things for feature films. Um, but I've always been a storyteller through the news. And I wanted to tell my stories, not just news stories. Um, and uh, so I made that, that switch. Well, it makes sense because I always found, because you know, not only did I do waste, I, I jokingly tell people I wasted eight semesters of my life learning black and white photography because now it's all gone and it's all digitized. But one of the other things I did on the artistic side is I enrolled in the drawing classes because I'm a pretty decent drawler. Mm-hmm. But for me, the hardest thing to wrap my mind around and what I'm getting to with this statement for leading up to what we're talking about with you is it was always weird for me to, whenever you're doing something creative, mm-hmm. to being taught, okay, I want you to be creative, but you have to draw this thing, draw it in this parameter of this class and this assignment but most people who are creative they have a hard time casting that creativity towards something that they're not particularly interested in right controlled creativity doesn't work well and so it's definitely makes more sense that if you're a creative person and you're wanting to do your own thing to if at all possible to be able to do it under your own umbrella under your own rules and your own guidelines just the key to that is being self-motivated and having um a natural work ethic because mm-hmm. if if you want to be creative and do your own thing but you have a terrible time at staying at task motivating and seeing things through to the end then it probably would behoove you to maybe find someone you can work under who shares sort of a creative idea with you right mm-hmm. now i met you out of lakeland florida and you're working on a pretty cool project that kind of goes side by side with what i do in the audio audio version of it and you're mm-hmm. um working on a document a documentary about World War II reenactors. How did that come to be? Well, actually, the documentary is about more than just World War II. Okay. It's about reenacting in general. Um, I've been working with reenactors for over seven years now in various capacities. Um, I shot all the stills and camera two video for a film called uh, Silver Wings Flying Dreams about the wasps, and that's in worldwide distribution now. Um, and I run up into um, reenactors in various capacities at other events and things. And um, as I've looked at what they do, and this is not just World War II, but, sure. you know, Civil War and Revolution and all these others, even like Pioneer Villages, mm-hmm. you know, there's, I see a, a shared theme, right? And, and what is also uh, attracted to me to them is, you know, they really live this, these lifestyles, when they're in uniform or costume or whatever, they're really in that mindset of that uh, period in time. Absolutely. And, and they've done all the research, all the fact-checking, all this to make sure that they're as authentic as they possibly be, can be at that point in their experience. 
I see that, and I remember the days when I was in you know school, being educated in history and all this. And you're sitting there and you're listening to blah blah blah, and you look at the book and it's a few pictures and it's just there's not much exciting about history, mm-hmm. right? But we're here because of all the history that has gone before us. And the film, the term that they're calling themselves now, a lot of them as living historians, that really brings it home. And it is living history. It's history brought alive. And and I'm I can't help thinking, but that if I had seen these kinds of things, reenactors doing their things, as a kid, it would have made history far more appealing, mm-hmm. not just to me, but to everybody else, I would think. And um, and that's important. You know, it's, it's important to know how we got to where we are. And I don't remember who said it, but if you, you know, if you're not a student of history, you're bound to repeat it. Absolutely. And when you're recreating you know, doing reenactments of wars and combat and stuff like that. It's it's fascinating to watch, but we don't want to, you know, relive those things for real. Oh, no, no, absolutely yeah, reenactment not. Reenactment shows that, you know, yeah, look at those cool tanks and stuff, but there's dead people laying in the field, right? Yeah. And that represents something that's significant, and we don't want to go there again. So the living history is a great reminder of of the sacrifices that were made to get us to where we're at and to maybe not do those kinds of things in the future. Well, interestingly enough, I think in 2019 it's even more important to try to build and maintain a living history community. Right. And the reason I say ironically is kids nowadays, they're all about the the multimedia, about watching short things on YouTube. But mm-hmm. once again, they're only interested in watching short things on YouTube that they already have an interest in. Right. And as I said on this podcast multiple times, so I won't go through the whole thing, but just for the purpose of this conversation, how I fell into living history and reenacting is um, in my late 20s, I found I have an interest in the history. And I was reading books and watching shows and doing the movies. And one day I was just scrolling through eBay and I came across a posting for an M1 helmet. Now, not knowing the difference between a front seam, rear seam, fixed bail, swivel bail, or any of the nomenclatures of what separates a Vietnam M1 helmet from a Korean War M1 helmet from World War II, it had what I like to call the nice price, and so I threw a bid out on it, and I got it. And it turned out to be a front seam, swivel bail, late war helmet with a Vietnam liner, which I quickly replaced the liner for authenticity purposes, and then I just simply set it on the desk in my office. And I noticed that every time someone came to my house, they would pick it up, and their first comment is, wow, this thing is heavy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I found myself talking to somebody who 30 seconds ago had absolutely no interest in the history of World War II, talking to me for 5, 10, 15 minutes about how this one object, how heavy it was, how they wouldn't be able to walk miles and miles and miles and live for days and days and days underneath this thing. And something as simple and tangible as having a two and a half pound helmet sitting on your desk now sparked interest in somebody about history that they didn't have before they walked into that room. And right. I, and I thought that was really interesting. And so I basically just started building a impression around that. And eight years later, here we are. <laughs> yeah, that's how it starts. And kind of like you were saying, you know, um, back when you're a kid, 
reading books. It's like, eh. But having something tangible to pick up and being able to talk to, it just sparks imagination and, and it makes that education a lot more um, interesting to people who otherwise wouldn't really care. And I think for a lot of people, it's really interesting, and particularly today with how advanced, you know, like a lot of our modern military and police uniforms are as far as, uh, protect, you know, protective gear, a lot of the, you know, they're lighter, quick dry, more ergonomic. And then what I like to compare that to, particularly when it comes to World War II and D-Day, um, is I like to tell people our, our boys landed on in France and basically their Sunday best. They had a wool shirt on that they had a tie on, or put a tie on. Wool pants, it's just like the same wool trousers they would wear to church or to work any day of the week. Uh, their shoes were pretty much the same as they wore back home. The only difference is they put on a helmet, a web belt, and wrap some leggings around their feet and grab the rifle. Yeah. And so yep. a lot of people are very interested in how basic, the, particularly the GI and you know the European uniforms were. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's definitely important to not only preserve living history, but make it grow so that we can continue to uh, preserve the history of history. Right. My father flew B-17s during World War II. He was in a bloody 100th following. So he knows the absolute horrors of the war because he experienced a huge amount of it. Um, And then he flew B-52s in Vietnam. And after he saw the Wasp film, he you know, looked, looked at me and said, well, who's going to remember us when we're gone? And, you know, when he looks at the reenactors and he said, it's those people right there. They're mm-hmm. the ones that are going to remember us when we're gone. And they're the ones that are going to tell everybody else about what we did when we're gone. And he's right. And uh, so that was another bit of inspiration for this project. Yeah, and back to your previous statement about authenticity, that's why amongst the community, we all kind of get hard on each other about um, authenticity standards and what we call, you know, we throw the term farb around, and sometimes it's a little aggressive and people go about it the wrong way, but we try to police our community as far as the authenticity of people's impressions because the general public, they don't know exactly what the uniforms were, and so when you see somebody wearing, mm-hmm. they're wearing an impression like they're laying on D-Day, but they got some cheapo modern-day aviator glasses that they got down at 7-Eleven because they don't like to be out in the sun. It's like, well, that's cute. And yes, pilots did wear aviator glasses, but um, very, 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 very seldomly did you see an infantry soldier wearing them while marching through France. And so, yes, (laughs) I I apologize that you have light sensitivity, but you've gone through this effort and energy to make sure your uniform's correct, but then you just go and throw it all away by putting on a pair of nine dollar sunglasses it's mm-hmm. and then it just makes your whole impression to people who know just look silly and um not taken seriously right and so as you've gotten involved into doing this particular project what's your impression been as far as uh living historians um willingness to participate in a project and how the the excited level and um How's that been going down for you? Well, you know, when I looked at at this project, and, and reenactors, this living historians have been asking me, when are you going to do a documentary on us? Um, I, I started looking into it, and I, said, I, I thought, well, there's got to be dozens and dozens of them. 
and quite frankly, when I take a hard look, there's all kinds of YouTube videos and small productions, and a lot of news type things. You know, they're visiting here, so the news mm-hmm. crew goes out. And that's not the same thing as a comprehensive documentary. No. And and it didn't take long to realize why, is because reenacting has been going on for thousands of years, and it's been going on worldwide. Virtually everything has been reenacted because. In days gone by, that was how you got the news, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the most basic form of storytelling. If you go back right. to cave drawings or how the Native Americans would teach their youth about their ancestors was through, right. yeah, they did dances and things like that, but that was their way of expressing and quote-unquote reenacting or living history of their ancestors. Right. And you'd see like a conquering general from Rome or someplace come back and they say, well, how'd it go? And then they would reenact some of the battle there. And the people would say, oh, okay, so this is how you won. But at the same time, they would see all this carnage there. And reenacting actually changed history because people would see these terrible battles and think, well, maybe we should try a different tact in the future. And so reenacting has actually colored history as, as time went on. Um, and that's really a significant thing. Um, so it, it's it's more than just storytelling. It's storytelling that has a direct impact on on the ideas of people and sometimes the conduct of nations. And so it's it's a very important thing to me. Um, it definitely is to the reenactors. And um, it's it's fascinating because it's more than just the military groups. There's pioneer villages. There's people that reenact, you know, showboats on the Mississippi. There's just Everything that you can think of in history, you know, railroad things, there's people that that do that. They reenact those people in those places and time. And so at any one time, history is being disseminated via these people worldwide. And it's really a it's a very large one to cover. So the project's goal is to at least acknowledge the scope of what's going on. And then kind of hone in on some different areas. And when I, the areas that I'm doing, of course, are, are some conflict things, but also village type things and lifestyle. And the response has been spectacular. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what I would get, but it has been spectacular. And, uh, and in men and women, it's almost probably almost 50 50 from the response. As many women reenactors, um, contacting me with stories and things like that and how they would like to participate as men themselves. And I find that uh, encouraging as well uh, because a lot of times children are involved in the reenacting and they grow up with it. So they come up, you know, they grow up with a special connection and fondness for history. And I think that's a really good thing. Have you ran into any of this in your uh, research? Um, and to, to, to me, it seemed, and I've only been doing this for a short while, like I said, eight years, but particularly over the last two years because of how sensitive uh, the public's getting just about everything. Everything's being politicized. And you have well, such I... a small group of people online that for some reason the news media feels represents a larger number than they actually do that um, organizations start to get a little concerned and what I'm getting at with this is I've been to two events within the last two years um, that were being held on public or uh, government land where we were basically told, hey, go out and do your battle reenactment, but no one can take a hit. We don't want the public to be offended by seeing someone getting shot. 
I I haven't run into that too much. Um, and you know, I come from the news world. Sure. And I I've been in combat. Um, and I mean, I've actually been shot. And you know, I'm not pulling the punches. You know, good news. You know, if you're a good journalist, you're going to tell the truth. You're going to show the truth. And that was what I did. And one of the reasons I stayed in so long was because I always did. I don't pull any punches. If this is what happened, that's what you see, unless some editor somewhere edits it out. Sure. So in this project, um, yeah, people will see reenactments where people get killed on the battlefield and things like that. But they'll also see other things as well. And the point is, this happened, folks. This happened. You can't whitewash history. You can try, but if you do, the consequences aren't going to be good. And so people need to know what happened, you know, a, you know, a realistic picture of what those days were like. And, and there's more than, you know, you learn a lot more about how harsh things could have been uh, from these reenactments than just the fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I saw a thing from a Revolutionary War doctor and he says there were no doctors during the revolutionary war there were surgeons because they didn't know anything about bacteria or loss of bodily fluids or anesthesia they had you know three minutes to save this guy's this person's life cut the leg arm hand off whatever if they could in three minutes versus trying to fix them in 15 minutes that's five other people die so those were harsh circumstances and people don't realize oh they had that back then no they really didn't <laughs> you know, so you learn a lot more about what conditions were like for everybody from the war thing, right? So you go in to see the war, but you learn so much more about medical history and all these other things. And you know, there's no, there's you know, political correctness. I think is really not a uh, an honorable term. Because it's not correct if you're changing the truth. Absolutely. It's absolutely not correct if you're changing the truth. This is what happened. This is what you're going to see. Right? And be prepared to see that. You know, if you really want to know, then we're going to show you. Yeah, because... And guess what? You will be informed where the others aren't. Yeah, because one of the things that, you know, the Hollywood productions of war very seldomly cover, um, with a few exceptions... um, you know, Hamburger Hill being one of them, and each uh, of mm-hmm. the Pacific being one, and then that is the infantryman's battle against its their environment, right? Um, oh, dysentery, yeah. living in the mud, the bugs. Um, you know, the Pacific covered a little bit about you know, um, and New Britain and um, mm-hmm. Bougainville, the mud, and and just yes, you have a formidable enemy who's trying to kill you, but when that enemy is not engaging in you, the rest of the time it's you versus your environment. And that's one of the things that a lot of living historians try to portray by, A, not washing their uniforms so they get muddier, muddier. And and I've seen a lot of great events, usually up north, where they'll do uh, World War I events, and they're actually, these guys will spend a whole day just digging trenches or big Mm foxholes and then just bringing in gallons and gallons of water to make mud and just yeah. literally sit in mud for hours and hours is uncomfortable and as soggy as it is, but to try to express to the public, hey, once again, you had a battle going on, but when the battle wasn't raging, the war was between you, your environment, and your health. And the enemy was going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. 
everybody was suffering. And then on top of the suffering, they shoot at each other. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's if, crazy. And, yeah. and if you're unlucky enough to take a hit, and if it didn't kill you instantly, a lot of times you're laying in that environment while definitely fighting for your life. So um, that's one of the things living historians also try to uh, get across. Now, back, I want to back up a little bit. One of the other things, forgive my birds, it's early and they're waking up. Um, one of the other things, at least not to badmouth the, the, the state-ran parks here in Florida... But back to the political correctness stuff and um, people getting offended by everything. We've lost, I think, two, maybe three battle reenactments. Now, they still allow us to do the living history side, which is great. But unfortunately, a lot of the public, they like to show up for the bang-bang and the smoke. And then they'll they'll go talk to us afterwards. And if you don't have the noise in the, in the battle, some people aren't even interested in coming out. But due to the politicizing of the unfortunate events such as school shootings and all these mass shootings which are definitely terrible and we don't want to overlook those things um there's basically a mandate put down in all florida state parks that there can be no uh battle um reenactments that are done using firearms that use cartridges i.e m1 garens and one carbines and all that now the black powdered you know civil war stuff the revolutionary war Spanish American, all that, that's fine. But anything that leaves a brass shell casing or resembles anything even remotely to a modern day rifle, they put a kibosh on. And so there was quite a few events this year that went from a living history aspect to a, including a reenactment down to just the living history side. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, as sad as it sounds, there are guys out there who. You know, they like doing the reenacting, but they, I mean, they like the living history side, but they also like doing the reenacting side. And it's right. going to be interesting to see how, what sort of negative effect that has on the events to come. Well, I, yeah, and I, and I look at that and I, I've read many things and written by other journalists, some, some of my friends, and, and their take, rightly or not, is that reenacting is shrinking. And it, and it typically is geared towards civil war reenacting. Yeah. Um, others seem to be growing. Um, my my feeling is that if the film is done right and portrays, you know, what reenacting in living history really is about, that it can change some minds about about those kinds of things. You know, because if you portray it, you know, the documentary is its strongest argument. This is what they're really doing, folks. If you, if you can't understand this, then what does that say about the country? Yeah. Oh, we're not very well educated. Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but but really put it out there. And once you hear it from the, the mouths of living historians and you see what they're doing and how this um, – because it's all educational, really. I mean, it's entertaining, but it's educational. And really, mm-hmm. one of the best ways to learn is to be entertained, right? Yep. It's, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, that was really cool, and I learned so much. That, those two statements go hand in hand. That's really a great thing, right? Yeah. And that's what reenactors do. They make it enjoyable. It's entertaining to learn these things. But if you respect them, then you know you're, you're taking a lot of 
of the history out of history. You know, they weren't just walking around in uniforms just to walk around in them. They shot, right? And and people were shot. And And that's just the plain truth of it. And if you don't like that, you know, we're we're still got people in Afghanistan and places. So so come on folks. And I think a lot of the real world. Well, and I think a lot of those uh, people who make those policies, um, knee jerk or not, obviously they don't know us. They don't know the in- right. They don't know the invest, the financial investment behind this. Let alone the hours and hours and years and years of pawn. As you open up this interview with the research. Right. Um, anytime I do leisure reading, I'm not reading comic books. I'm not reading fiction. I'm every book I own is World War II based. It's a history mm-hmm. book. Most of them are biographies because I, I enjoy the the firsthand side of the story more than I do the logistics and the uh, date side. But I you right. know I have that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, the amount of financial investment and time investment to make sure everything is right so that we can come out and educate the public for free. You know we don't right. get paid to be there. At least most right. of us don't. Obviously, you know if you have a large you know, tanks and what have you, sometimes you'll get a little bit of grant help as far as transportation mm-hmm. goes and all that. But I'd say 99.8% of us aren't paid to be there. Actually, we spend money driving hours and hours and, yeah. you know, gas and food and all that. So on top of our uniforms, every time we do one of these, we're spending our own money to get there. And we don't mind. That's what that's what we're doing this hobby for. And then to have certain things taken away from us just because of uh, of a news cycle or some horrible tragic events i'm not trying to downplay any of these events by any means saying well who cares they're taking you know i trust me i I completely get it um Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of to use don't let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. um right and 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 part of like i say part of the point of this film is to show those things that you just talked about all the hours that countless thousands of tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of people around the world are all doing the same thing, trying to get it right for their particular impression in their country and their particular time, you know, period in history. So with all this work going out there, and I'm, I'm assuming that they're probably not getting paid either, no matter what country they're in or what they're doing, you know, this is an amazing resource that's not being tapped nearly enough. And, you know, the dedication these people put into this stuff, is really one of the few things that are keeping accurate history alive, you know, because books are being revised by, you know, Texas doesn't want this or that, so they change it. Well, but that's, this is the truth and that's not. Mm-hmm. You know, a reenactor is not going to say, well, I'm going to do the new version. They're going to do what happened. Yep. And, and they are always going to do what happened. And so this whole reenacting living history thing needs to be protect, not only protected, but actually nurtured and encouraged to grow. And I'm hoping the hope is, is that this film helps change attitudes about people. Number one, number two, they find it entertaining enough and say, you know what? I want to do that too. Right. Because I learned so much and they seem to have fun and it. Yeah, it's hard, but at the end of the day, you can say, man, I, I, I sweated and worked for, all this time to make this, I went to this event. It was hot out there. It was cold out there. It was rainy out there, kind of like in the news business. But at the end of the, end of the day, we've done our thing. People watched it. They were entertained. They learned. We had some great conversations. And it's all worthwhile. And so 
than they think about that. And next time something controversial comes up that maybe they have to vote on, that little bit of thing will be in their head, in the back of their mind, and they'll say, yeah, I think this is really the right thing to do. So, you know, like I said, reenactment has, has literally changed the world over time. Uh, maybe more so in the past when that was all they had to look at than today. But um, it's just as important now, if not more so, <laughs> because yeah. decisions can be made much quicker now than mm -hmm. they used to be. So, Yeah, and kind of like yours. We want to, we want to portray an accurate view of a few people in this thing. You know, follow them around. Watch them go through all the struggles that they do trying to make the thing right. You know, go out there and live that reenactment with them. Take the cameras out there. So when if they're charging a field, we do that with them. If they're doing something, you know, on a farm or something, fixing a hay, hay thresher or whatever, we're doing that with them. Sure. So we want to portray it as as it was with them. Yeah, and kind of back to whether or not this hobby is living, dying, or maintaining size. Um, I've also mentioned this in the past. I think as time progresses, I think living history will probably not only stay strong, but I think we might see, and it may be a short-lived uh, boost, but I can't help but look at the cosplay community. Right. Oh, yeah, that's thriving. Because not only is it thriving, um, and, and I give credit to a little show called The Big Bang Theory, because you have an entire generation mm -hmm. of kids who grew up for, I mean, that show's been on, what, 10, 12 years? Yeah. You have kids in their 20s now who's been watching that show since they were 12, 10. And, you know, for old guys like you and me, you know, when we <laughs> see that, it's supposed to revolve around nerds. Now, you can't have yeah. a bunch of Revenge of the Nerds-style nerds on TV, and so they kind of class them up a little bit. And I often give that show credit to the, the trend of skinny jeans back in the early 2000s because, once again, the production was trying to make these guys look like dorks but not super dorks. But when you have generation mm -hmm. of kids following these, I give that show credit to the boom of interest in comic books, mm -hmm. science. But on that show, those guys were big into cosplay. Now, the writers yeah. did it because at that time, cosplay and reenacting both were kind of, by the general public, were frowned upon. Oh, that's goofy stuff. These guys are quote-unquote, dressing up and playing army or dressing up to pretend they're Superman. Mm -hmm. And so when that show first was came out, cosplay wasn't super big and socially acceptable. And let's be honest, reenacting is kind of, by people who've never been to an event or don't know reenactors, when you tell them you reenact, like, oh, you're one of those weirdos who dress up and play army on the weekend. Well, I think because of the cosplay thing and because of Big Bang Theory making it so socially acceptable and now you have a generation of kids who go to cosplay, mm -hmm. those ones who have already dressed up as a fictional superhero or comic book person who do have the um, interest in history side, that's an easier mm -hmm. leap for them to make because they've already dressed oh, yeah. up as something with, you know, oh, I dressed up as a dragon slayer or whatever. Now it's it's easier and less self-conscious to just put on an army uniform and go out and tell people about the history that you already know. And so, interestingly, I think cosplay will definitely help the living history community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're also they're already used to, you know, spending agonizing mm -hmm. hours trying to get their costume right. Mm -hmm. The you research. Know, I, I've covered quite a few cosplay events for the news, and one thing that 
has really grown out of cosplay is an interest in robotics um, because they, they get into these big mechanized things like from Transformers mm-hmm. and they move around and you see these these guys making these things and they're they're actually sitting there doing engineering, right? They're engineering parts and things that, and motors and stuff that make their costume move. So that right there, you know, is an amazing fact that people would go to that length to learn robotics and motors and all this stuff to make a costume work. So having that that capability behind them and that experience, like you said, you know they're going to carry that precision and that interest in authenticity over to their other types of reenacting. So, well, and while we're on the subject, just because we're talking about um, something as you know interesting as taking a fake fantasy idea and it inadvertently, mm-hmm. let's look at steampunk. You got some young yeah. kids, particularly girls. They see these photos of steampunk, and they start researching their outfits. And next thing they know, they're digging through antique stores. And they're looking at the history of, okay, what's, what was the clothing like back then? And all of a sudden, now they're starting to educate themselves on history from back in the 1800s. They're finding themselves mm-hmm. digging through antique stores. And, yes, they're looking for something of a particular look. But as other living historians do, and anybody who starts getting into something of a particular time period, you're interest doesn't just stay focused laser focused on that one thing yes you're still in there but you're going to start finding oh hey check out that fan yes it's not steampunk it's from the 50s but that's a cool fan i i I think i'm going to buy that or hey i'm interested Mm -hmm. in this glassware from the 40s and so they may take something as oh i how'd you get into antique shopping or picking and oh you know i was in a steampunk when i was 16 and i was looking for goggles and i just started going to antique stores and just fell in love with history and antiques and so yeah. something like that, it just, it takes people down so many different avenues that I right. think it'll help, you know, something like steampunk has probably helped in other aspects as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. I'm uh, fighting dehydration again still. And so um, I do want to apologize. I, I wanted to get, you know, do an interview with you guys for your document, your document, your I don't know why I can't say that word this morning here. <laughs> the documentary? The documentary, but um, for the first time ever, especially being a Florida reenactor, I was fighting heat stroke at that event, and when you guys were setting up in the tent, I was just laying on the ground, and the whole world was spinning. Mm-hmm. And um, ironically, here we are talking this morning, and I was out, you know, I did some, I did a 10-mile run on Sunday, I did a four-and-a-half-mile quote-unquote recovery run on Tuesday, and then last night at the gym I started getting lightheaded, so I don't know if I'm just not consuming enough water and I'm dehydrated or not, but here we are right now. That's why I keep taking a break because I keep drinking water because I'm trying to get the room to stop spinning. Mm-hmm. But um, if you know, if at any point you want to set up a time to do an interview, I'll be more than happy to uh, reciprocate. But if anybody's looking for information about you or about mm-hmm. – um, you know, Iron Robot Films, where do they go? And um, where can I see some? Because I see on your website you have a few other projects in the works too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're in the middle of wrapping up a History Channel project. We're um, actually we're doing that later uh, in May up in Philadelphia. Um, but we have a couple other projects that we're working on. Um, the Forever Tea Party, a short film 
uh, the Gallows Lot, which is a docudrama up in West Virginia, and a few other things. But the best place to, to find out what we're doing and see see that is at uh, our website, ironrobotfilms.com, or you can email us at info at ironrobotfilms.com. Now, I don't think we covered it. Is there a working title for this project? Do you guys have a fixed title? Yes. It's called Dispatches, Stories from the Front, A Reenactor's Life. And while working on this project, before we wrap up, um, have you primarily doing, been doing Florida? Or where, how, how far has this project taken you as far as uh, travel? Um, so, f- well, part of this this project is made up from film that we've shot in other places. So we've been around the United States. We've done air-to-air photography with World War II aircraft and all kinds of things like that. Um, but to get the scope right, I suspect we will be traveling to some other countries around the world. Nice. So you guys are still, this, you guys are still early into this. I can. Yeah, it's still very early. Great. Yeah, we're looking at a year and a half more of production. So. Now, are, are you guys funding this through traditional ways? You're doing the crowdsourcing? How's the funding coming? I mean, if you are well, doing the, crowdsourcing. That's something that we just started at, uh, on, and... Um, Right now, I've been funding it myself, <laughs> um, but that's going to change because it's, it's, this is an expensive project. Sure. Um, it's a very expensive project, um, and we haven't really put out any, any funding ideas yet or anything like that, any way to fund us. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's coming, but, but that will happen. Um, we have... One manu- you know, one manufacturer um, that's interested in their they're an arms manufacturer. They don't make historic weapons, uh, but they make things for police and that type of thing. And and they're interested in it because you know everybody portrays weapons as bad and bad sure. and bad. You know, and yeah, they're designed to. Some of them are designed for killing people, but you know they've hunted with them in the past, like muskets and things, were multi-purpose. And their whole thing is they they want the correct version of history out there. And they know that reenactors do it. And they know that as a news photojournalist, I'm going to paint an accurate picture of what I see. Um, so, um, so they're pretty much interested in it. And I've had, you know, cursory interest from other groups already. It's just that it's so new in the project that we haven't really had time to sit down and explore where they can help us and, and vice versa. Sure. So. Well, you know, and if and when the project gets to a point where you guys have launched a crowdsourcing campaign and you're wanting to get the word out, please reach out to me. We'll have you back on. Uh, we'll kind of sure. update everybody on where the project lays and how, you know, they could throw some support your way if it comes to that. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll get it, get you guys down the road. Iron Robot Films. He is the Chief Imagination Officer, Barry D. Kirsch. Barry, thank you so much for your time. I'm so excited to hear someone putting forth a full in-depth um you know desire to put a project together such as this because like you said other than you know a few reenactors carrying around some gopros and rudimentary trying to do some stuff on their computers and with the exception of maybe micro doing an episode on uh civil war reenacting with some of my friends called hey someone's got to do it um there's not been a whole lot of uh in-depth look at all into this hobby and this lifestyle and on, uh, we appreciate everything you're doing, and thank you so much for your time. 
Well, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Okay, cool. Hey, appreciate it. Um, in all seriousness, though, if you um ever want to set up an interview or get any information from me, I will be more than happy to uh, help oh, yes. facilitate that. And uh, I know you guys were talking to the cat who runs that movie, Memphis Bell, um, plane, and talking about perhaps mm-hmm. getting something set up in a hangar and doing some more yeah. more conducive um, crowd controlled um, filming. Um, yeah. I will definitely be willing to do that. The only downside is is that uniform I was wearing that day belongs to um, John, not John. Um, yeah, it it belonged to one of the other gentlemen, and it just happened mm-hmm. to fit me. So, but I'm sure I'll be able to get up there because obviously, doing those impressions, um, we need the the numbers because of how many crewmen they had on this plane. So, right. <clears throat> so, but um, I also do 82nd. Um, I do a lot of Marine Corps stuff. Um, Interestingly enough, when I got into all this stuff, it was it was the PTO that sparked my interest. But I went out and got a Marine Corps uniform, put it all together without doing any research and finding that uh, Pacific reenactments at the time were few and far between just because we didn't have any enemy. So that's right. how I got into doing the European stuff. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if you um, ever need any help or you know you're looking for some uh, interviews, just let me know and we'll arrange something. I will. That hangar that... Uh... <clears throat> we were talking about is one that we used in the wasp film oh cool and so we had a bunch of it's it's the uh warbird flying experience down there in Kissimmee. nice so we had that entire hangar with all the planes in there we had seven wasps that we filmed five of them have since passed away um i took the last photos of most of them and um we did the interviews in there uh, we were nominated for an emmy for that film beautiful um we also won the Silver Telly, which is the highest Telly award you can win. And so that film has been received really well. And it's, it is a beautiful film. And if you look at it, all the stills in there, other than like historic, old historic pictures, I shot. <clears throat> and then some of the camera two stuff, B-17 taken off, I shot all of that. Beautiful. So we're carrying a little, over quite a few of our connections to... Uh, military reenactors as far as aircraft goes and those companies. So we have experience or um, interest, excuse me, from them in this project as well because we've worked be- with them before. Great. So that's a real plus. Well, I'm definitely interested. Um, I actually started on this podcast when I, I actually worked in Trussell Radio for five and a half years. And this partic- I do multiple podcasts, but this particular one, when I started, the whole idea was to interview World War II vets. Mm-hmm. which I've been able to interview five of them, but as you know, they're getting harder and harder to find oh, yeah. because we're fighting history. So with that being yeah. said, keep my information, and if you ever come across the vet in your travels who's willing to do a phone interview with me, please send them my yeah. way because my key, you know, this is kind of because of how hard it is to find, you know, vets, and not even just vets. I'm also looking for women who are alive during the time right. who, who can remember <laughs> what it's like, you know, on the home front. Um, yeah. But because of how hard it is, it's kind of transitioned into a rural, uh, a living history slash World War II podcast. But no, I definitely, my yeah. my core role is to find those who were there, as I like to call this segment, to uh, do interviews with. So if you find any, if you come across anybody who was there who's interested to do a phone interview, uh, please uh, send me their information and I'll set it up. I will. I will. We interviewed uh, Mario Petrino. I don't know if you saw that interview. No. He if- was... <clears throat> he was F Company of the 506th. Nice. With the Band of Brothers. He yep. was the guy in the film that rode the white horse. Okay, yeah. 
Fat so boy. I got an interview with him. He has since passed away. And then my father, like I said, he flew B-17s and B-25s during World War II. He participated in the bombing of Dresden and all those things. Is he still with us? No, no, he passed a couple years ago. Yeah, my grandfather but worked. He was instrumental in helping me decide to do this project. Sure. And he also helped with the WASP project as far as his experience with them. It was interesting because he flew B-17s during the war, and my mom worked at Westinghouse making the headsets that he wore wow. flying the B-17s. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. Yeah, my uh, grandfather worked grave registration in Europe. Um, unfortunately, he passed early. He passed mm -hmm. in early two thousands from health complications and all that. But obviously, working grave registrations, you never really told any uh, oh, yeah. any history about what you did over there. My uncle mm -hmm. has most of his spring homes. My mom did give me the one thing my mom gave me that he brought back is he brought back one of the um, first aid emergency kit boxes that would mount up underneath the dashboard of the jeeps and so i have that sitting in my office here wow and the army dog tags i wear when i do my army impressions are exact reproductions of his my aunt sent me a mm -hmm. photo of his and so i basically basically had reproductions and the interesting thing i learned when doing that and i've never asked anybody unfortunately my grandmother since passed away and she passed away before i figured this out but on his dog tags he had his father-in-law, i.e. my grandmother's father, listed as his next of kin, opposed to any of his family members. Hmm. And now I know he was originally from a small um, coal mining town in eastern Kentucky, and I didn't. And uh -huh. whereas his father-in-law was more prominent and from Cincinnati, so I don't know if maybe he did that because he figured he'd be easier to get a hold of, or if right. he had a falling out. But I just thought that was interesting that he would have his father-in-law listed as his next of kin on his dog tags. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got a lot of my dad's World War II uniform things um i've got a full flight suit from his b-52 days and i also have i also have all the manuals my dad helped wow. test fly the b-47 and i've got all the manuals they're in pristine condition from that plane <laughs> where you definitely gotta keep that climate control and away from the bugs and the the moths and all oh yeah that. it's it's sealed it's sealed we're getting ready to take it um i'm headed up to savannah in the not too distant future, and we're going to take it up to the the Eighth uh, Air Force Museum there. Oh, beautiful. They have a B forty seven restored there. Nice. And they they would love. They've asked said that they would love to have that stuff to put it on display. Yeah, we I've talked about in the past episode too. A lot of people who go to museums they don't understand why no flash photography or why it's so dark in there. Right. And I learned this the hard way. I went on eBay and I bought this. I'm looking at it now. This beautiful propaganda poster from the Pacific War. Um, mm hmm. The family who owned it had a pharmacy, and they hung it up. And after the war, they folded it up and put it, put it away. And so wow. I got the thing for like fifteen bucks, but I wanted to display it. But mm -hmm. I knew in order to display it, I needed to protect it. And luckily, I do computer work, and so I do work for a framing company. And so they gave me a decent price. But in order to get this thing framed in UV protectant glass, acid-free right. paper, and all that, and I now have a fifteen-dollar poster hanging in a hundred and thirty-dollar frame after my discount. So yeah, well, that's <laughs> people don't realize that's the way it works. people it don't is. realize the cost that goes into preserving paper. Oh yeah, I got the I've got my father's original um, banner that you, that it was hung in my grandparents' house from him. You know, while he was serving, mm -hmm. they, you know. With the star on there and all of that. Yeah, the blue star. Yep. So. 
Well, thank you yeah. for your time, sir. And All right. Thank you. Bye. And I just want to thank, once again, Barry D. Kursk, Chief Imagination Officer of Iron Robots Films, for stopping in and hanging out with us for this episode. Please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com if you are an iTunes subscriber or if you're listening to this on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, all the other outlets. If you are a subscriber where this audio automatically downloads to your device to listen, that's fantastic. But please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, WTSPWWII.com, and go to the page for this episode. And right there you can find a link to his webpage, Iron Robot Films, and you can also find a, a link to the um, Silver Wings Flying Dreams website, which is a cool project that he worked on. And you can see some of the photos. So go to the website, check out his site. Um, if you're interested in perhaps getting some information about this project he's working on or future projects, reach out to him through his website. But Barry, once again, thank you so much, and we got some very cool projects coming in the future.